Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. The 2017 classification of the epilepsies defined three diagnostic levels, including seizure type, epilepsy type, and epilepsy syndrome. Epilepsy syndromes have been recognized as distinct entities long before the first classification of epilepsy syndromes was proposed in 1985, but a formally accepted ILAE classification of epilepsy syndromes was lacking. So in 2017, the Nosology and Definitions Task Force was charged with this endeavor. Sharpwaves talked with Elaine Morrell, the task force chair, about the process, which spanned more than five years, hundreds of Zoom meetings, and lots and lots of coffee. She spoke about the significance of the classifications, which were published in five separate papers in May of 2022, as well as the implications for the future. The group started with a meeting in Barcelona, where they tackled the important question, what is an epilepsy syndrome? Here's Dr. Elaine Worrell. Kate Riney and her colleagues had put together um, epilepsydiagnosis.org. And so that actually had a fair bit of information on the syndromes, although those were not ILAE specific syndromes at that point in time. Um, and then we also had this great resource, right? The Guide Blue from, um, and that there, that had gone through several revisions as well. And so, you know, those are, those are really our starting points. Um, and, um, and even actually before we did that, we had to define within our group what, what a, a syndrome was, right? So what did we define as a syndrome? And so that was um, most of actually the first meeting in, in Barcelona was just coming up with a succinct, um, appropriate definition of what an epilepsy syndrome was. And that's listed in our, um, our methodology paper. And then we had to look through, you know, what were the established recognized syndromes? And then were there other syndromes that were not necessarily in the Gide Blue or on epilepsydiagnosis.org that probably met criteria for syndrome. So um, we looked through the different papers, the different ages, and then came together with a list and had actually people vote um, on whether they felt this was or was not a syndrome. Um, and we went with the majority ones that were close, we actually discussed. And then we had um, uh, individuals um, within each group, we, we divided our, our task force into different groups. And, and those were the neonatal infantile group, the child group, the um, uh, adolescent variable age, and then the IgE group. And we had people within those groups go through and propose um, a write-up for those different syndromes that was circulated to the rest of the subgroup. Uh, we had lots of Zoom meetings that were usually very early in the morning for me and very late in the evening for the Australians. And um, uh, and where we discussed the, the um, uh, different criteria um, and um, uh, came to consensus. And then once we had um, consensus on the different, you know, what were the syndromes and what were the criteria for the syndromes, then we um, uh, took it to the Delphi methodology and we included all of our task force members. And then we additionally enriched our, um, our group with um, epilepsy experts, both pediatric and adult epilepsy experts from the other ILAE regions. Um, and so we had good um, representation um, internationally from the various regions. And then we did a Delphi process and that was a 
um, a couple of round Delphi process where um, individuals, we would propose the criteria, you know, to make a diagnosis of childhood absence epilepsy, you must have absence seizures. Um, that, that was a mandatory criteria. Or, you know, if you had um, this seizure type that was exclusionary, you could not um, uh, make that diagnosis with, with that exclusionary criteria. And so actually with that, we got very, um, very good consensus, even with our first round where people did not agree. We had text boxes and we asked them to, to list what reasons they had to disagree. Um, and we also um, asked them if they had other criteria that they really felt should be listed either as mandatory or exclusionary. And so where those were listed and we discussed that amongst the group and um, uh, there were occasional ones that we included in the second round. Um, and then the ones where we didn't get agreement on, we again discussed that within our group, made revisions where appropriate, and then put that around to, to a second round. Following that, we then um, wrote up our papers, put them online, sent them into epilepsia, and we invited public comments um, online, as well as um, comments from the epilepsia reviewers. And then we created a second task force um, which had for the most part, all of the lead authors on the first paper, and then some new people as well from uh, that had not been on our first task force. And, and uh, we um, addressed all of the comments that had come in online and from the reviewers. I mean, it sounds like a, a, a long, but fruitful and very collaborative process. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, you know, all of us um, commented, you know, great to see the papers published, but we're actually gonna miss meeting at 6 a.m. <laughs> You need a discussion. You know, you can't send these things around just by email. That, that doesn't work. You need a discussion. And I mean, this was hundreds of hours. And I know that, you know, we certainly met, some of us met at the AES. We often met at the international meetings, but that still just gives you, you know, eight hours at a time. And so those were really, we, we kept those discussions for um, uh, areas where maybe there was a, there was more disagreement between the group where we really needed to, to examine and, and discuss things and things where we had a higher likelihood of agreement. Those were mostly on Zoom, although there were some interesting Zoom conversations too. So for some people listening who may not be aware, what is the significance of being able to classify all of these epilepsy syndromes? Yeah, so we really, I think the one thing about syndromes is um, syndromes are really pretty distinct entities. So as you know, the epilepsies are really a group, a large group of disorders that all come together and, and cause seizures or unprovoked seizures. Um, if you look at syndromes and you can identify a syndrome, that gives you a much, much more specific clinical entity. So you often have specific seizure types. You often have specific comorbidities that you know are going to come with this that you can monitor for, or conversely, lack of comorbidities. So you can actually be very reassuring to the family your child has this, and you know this is not associated with intellectual disability or or other things. Um, and then um, it often helps hone your investigation. So not all syndromes have specific etiologies, but some of the syndromes, um, if you know the syndrome. It really helps you choose appropriately. These are the investigations I'm going to do that are highest yield. And so that's, you know, saving money. That's also saving, you know, pokes for a child. If you're having lots of blood work or you're having, you know, different tests done. Um, and then finally, I think um, oftentimes syndromes really help you in choosing the best therapy from the get-go. So you're not going through lots of different therapies. You're not choosing therapies that can actually make their seizures worse, but you can choose that, that right medication or the right treatment 
um, really from the get-go and, and have um, the patient have, you know, improved seizure control or even seizure freedom much earlier and then hopefully lessen the comorbidities and lessen, you know, the side effects of trying different medications before you find um, a therapy. So I think just, you know, with those criteria, and we really chose those criteria to be um, applicable worldwide. And we really, you know, ensured that they were applicable to resource limited regions as well, who maybe didn't have access to the latest genetic testing or, you know, high quality MRI. Um, and so I think, you know, with those, hopefully clinicians will be able to identify these very unique entities and syndromes are common. They're, they're certainly commoner in kids. Um, if you look at kids less than two to three years of age, about half of kids presenting with epilepsy can be defined into a certain syndrome. So that's a big number. And if you look at children overall, it's about a third, um, a little bit less common in adults, but I think it's probably under-recognized in adults. And so hopefully we'll get more data on, um, on adults as well. What about implications for, for research? You know, now that these syndromes are, are classified, there can be a little more common ground. Yeah, I think for research, certainly. Um, I think we've seen, you know, a lot of clinical trials recently being focused, for example, on Dravet syndrome. We've seen clinical trials focused on Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And I think we're actually going to see more clinical trials coming out focusing on the specific syndromes. And so this definitions will really, you know, allow us to choose a very um, uniform population and ensure that the patients that we're actually studying to see if drug A or drug B is effective in Lennox-Gastaut actually do have Lennox-Gastaut and not something else that can mimic that. So I think that's really important. I think where we're going um, uh, even towards the future is, and we've, we've addressed a few of these in, in, the, um, in the papers, is etiology-specific syndromes. And so these are where we identify a specific etiology that is associated with a very unique clinical presentation in addition. And those are important because many of those types of, of conditions are amenable to disease-modifying therapies. So some of them are gene-related, many of them are gene-related epilepsies. And even if we don't have a specific gene-modulating therapy now, there, we have seen so many advances um, in different gene therapies or antisense oligonucleotides. And what we really know with a lot of those conditions is they are devastating, not only from an epilepsy standpoint, but they're devastating from a developmental standpoint as well. And the sooner you can pick those up and recognize them, if you have a disease-modifying therapy, you know, the hope is that you can actually prevent a lot of that comorbidity, you can prevent a lot of that intellectual disability. Um, whereas if you, you know, make the diagnosis when the kid is 12 years old, instead of, you know, 12 months old, you're going to, to have a lot more comorbidities and um, things that you actually can't get back. And so, you know, the hope is that combining syndrome and etiology is, is going to be even more helpful to getting the right therapy as quick as we can for the, the patient. So now that the classifications are finished and there are 39 syndromes classified, which groups do you want to reach with these new classifications? Who needs to see these and how are you going to disseminate them? I think where we really need to get it to is, um, you know, into the particularly adult epilepsy world where um, they're not really, syndromes aren't on the radar. Syndromes are on the radar of most pediatric epileptologists, but they're just not on the radar of adult epileptologists. So get it out to them. And then the general neurologist. So, you know, you're not just thinking, you know, is there a lesion on your MRI or not, but you're thinking, what is the syndrome that this, this patient has? So I think really targeting and getting it out there to the general neurology group is going to be important. As I mentioned before, we have this epilepsydiagnosis.org resource on the ILAE website, and that is being revamped. Um, 
So I think um, uh, Nicholas Specchio has been tasked with uh, revamping that and Kate Riney, who did the original um, uh, work is also going to be very involved in that. And that's a great resource. So it's free, it's online. Um, I tell all, all of my residents about it. And so hopefully they will continue, you know, disseminate that, tell all of the other residents. I do um, an epilepsy course at the Child Neurology Society. Every year I tell all of those residents that I do the course with um, about that resource. Um, and they can sign up, they can look at EEGs, they can watch videos of the patients actually having seizures of different types. And so that's a, a really good resource. Um, we also will probably also uh, putting together a PowerPoint, um, just a summary PowerPoint, similar to what has been done for the classification that Ingrid Sheffer had done um, uh, and, and now looking at, at classification of, of epilepsy syndromes so that people could download that PowerPoint for review or for teaching or things like that. And then we are planning um, uh, at uh, various epilepsy meetings to be presenting um, uh, you know, epilepsy, these are the, how we think about epilepsy syndromes and neonates. This is how we think about epilepsy syndromes in, in childhood. Were there any topics that were particularly controversial or took a little time to work through? So, I mean, there were a couple of issues. So I think, you know, certainly that. So I think when you look at the classification of the epilepsies paper, they talk about the DEEs. And I think that's a great term. But, you know, if you have somebody who's normal until they're 40 and then they have, you know, a, an illness where they have epilepsy and they lose cognitive skills and lose motor skills, that's not really a DEE because they were developmentally normal. This is not a, a developmental problem and it's not an epileptic encephalopathy because it's not the epilepsy that's causing that. It's, it's another process. And so we did have a fair bit of discussion as to, you know, how to classify those. And that's why we came up with this progressive neurological um, deterioration. And then we also had a, a quite a bit of discussion on um, the concept of the genetic generalized epilepsies versus the idiopathic generalized epilepsies. Um, and that was a little bit um, less clear. And there was a lot of unhappiness, I think, from several people when that classification came out in 2017, kind of lumping those a little bit together. And, and so we had quite a bit of discussion with people on, you know, why why do we need to keep the IgE separate? And what specifically is an IgE? So, you know, what, what syndromes are included in that? And that took a fair bit of discussion and that we had that actually at one of the big um, meetings in collaboration with one of the international congresses. So we could have most of our task force present for that. No, I mean, I think it was, it was a great learning process for me. Um, it was a lot of work, but I, I really enjoyed it and um, feel very fortunate to have worked with such a great team to make this happen. We had some, you know, amazing, very much, you know, get it done people on our task force that, that really worked very hard. And I think it's really, um, you know, a testament to the, to the efforts of our whole group that, uh, that we got this work done. Dr. Kate Reine spearheaded the development of epilepsydiagnosis.org more than a decade ago, and the site's information was a valuable resource for the task force. So the next step is now going to be an update of the website to reflect the current terms and syndromes. And that's going to be a bit of work because the syndromes are kind of interconnected all across the whole website. Um, and some of the syndromes um, are now etiology specific syndromes, but we've got etiology section and syndrome section. So we have to work out the mechanics of the website according to that paper. The other thing that we've been very committed to doing, which went on hold, it was to be the next development of the website, which was multi-language translation. 
So that so the website was translated entirely into Spanish, and we were underway with French and um, Arabic and uh, Mandarin, but all of that had to just be put on hold because um, with the syndrome work, it then became clear that there was going to have to be a re-update of the English version of the website, which is going to create a bit of a challenge given that there's a parallel existing translation in Spanish. So that's going to be, um, uh, we'll just have to work through it step by step. As a member of the task force, Dr. Rani was involved in the entire classification process, as well as first author on one of the five papers published in Epilepsia in May 2022. Elaine was a really fantastic chair. It involves um, collaborating and resolving um, differences of opinion across, you know, uh, a lot of very big experts in the field. Uh, and, and, and Elaine's stewardship through that was really instrumental in continuing forward progress, navigating, um, you know, solutions to variations in opinion um, and, uh, and just seeing that huge piece of work through. So Elaine would have put in an enormous amount of time. It's a total of 39 syndromes have been um, published with uh, their agreed definitions and then detailed text on the wider entity of the syndrome, um, which I think will take us forward uh, quite a long way. The interesting point to note is that this was has not been done for decades. The last real international collaboration where international experts got together um, and published a, a Bible or a, a book on the epilepsy syndromes happened under Henri Gasteau. Uh, I think it was in the 19, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. He had a collaborative of, I think it was only 13 international experts um, in epilepsy came together in Marseille in France. Out of that, the Guide Bleu was published. It must be must have been quite different to how we did things now. At that time, there was no internet, there was no emails, there was no Zoom, there was no Teams. So, you know, people really did have to get together and it was probably hard copy paper uh, typing. But yeah, the editing process would have even been very different in those days, I'm sure as well. So it's, I, historically, it's a, for me, it feels like a, a big moment to have produced that level of collaboration. Uh, on a personal note, obviously, it was a fantastic journey. I got to spend my evenings in many late night meetings um, with lots of people that I didn't know beforehand but we got to know each other's personalities, uh, styles, um, the way that we collaborated, our thought processes. Uh, we got to, I got to hear other people's views on things, perspectives that were refreshing. Um, we were, you know, often um, for some of us, it was late night and there was coffee involved in trying to stay awake. <laughs> and for others, it was early morning and they were fresh out of a shower with their first coffee of the day. So we became this extra family, which was very nice to be part of. I, I guess going forward, it will be interesting to see um, how the international community um, consider um, the papers now that they've been published and I'm sure there will be areas for improvement as time goes on and there will be future work 
really, you know, intending to really expand on the etiology syndromes because we know more about underlying cause now in many conditions that we didn't even know the underlying cause before. And now we can understand that better and we're probably going to be describing very specific presentations related to specific underlying causes. So more of those, what we call the etiology-specific epilepsy syndromes going forward. Thanks for listening to Sharpwaves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharpwaves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.